Welcome to The Unwritten Playbook, where we talk to interesting people who are rejecting a status quo and paving a new way. This is your host, Megan Bowen. On today's episode, I'm speaking with James Buckley, Director of Business Development at JB Sales Training, who has dedicated his career to guiding salespeople to invest in themselves. He is also the creator of hashtag say what sales and made me laugh so much during this episode. We talk about how the buying experience is so much more important than the the features of your product or service that you're selling. Of course, your product, your service, you know, has to provide value, but all things being similar, buyers are going to choose based on their buying experience over a lot of other factors. And we cover several tactics that you can start to implement right away to drive better outcomes for yourself. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Now to this episode. Really excited to kick off our conversation today. You have a, a good status quo that you reject. So uh, I'm excited to, to spend some time talking with you about this today, James. So I will pose my favorite question to you um, to kick off the conversation. What is the status quo that you reject and why do you reject it? Salespeople believe that their product and features is more important than the customer or prospect's experience with the seller. And I do not believe that is true. I believe the experience matters as much, if not more, than the value of the product and the features. Yes, I believe in solving problems, but I do also think that the experience is just as important. I love this topic, and I'll actually pose a quick follow-up question on this. So do you think that um, a seamless and incredible buying experience would potentially even outweigh some feature or product deficiencies. Like if all else was equal, that the buyer might go with the seller that had the better experience, even if maybe the competitive product was better. I absolutely believe that to be the case. I have seen behemoth companies turned away at the door because smaller organizations that were ready to give them their money didn't feel like they were getting treated right. They didn't feel like they were being treated the way they wanted to be treated as a customer. And that's a buying signal and a selling signal. A seller has to be able to recognize that fact that this is a company I'm not going to give a lot of attention to. So if they buy from me, great. But if they don't, I'm fine with that too. And buyers have to know going to these big behemoths that if they're small enough, the chances of them getting the attention that they really want is kind of small because larger organizations sometimes tend to focus on enterprises and less on the little guys. So I've seen companies say, I really wanted to go with this, but man, the salesperson was just terrible. I went with this other company because they really gave me a lot of great attention and their salesperson was on point. That is a great example of somebody going with a better experience over a reputable company. Well, um, I agree with you on this completely. I have a customer success background. And so the bulk of my career has really been focused on providing and cultivating and creating great customer experiences. And it's been fascinating to me how typically under-resourced um, or underfunded those types of departments are given how important, you know, customer yeah. retention is, you know, so I think like the, the root cause of what you're getting at is I think companies essentially... Uh, prioritizing the wrong things because they believe that that's what's going to bring them 
revenue and success. Why do you think that this is a status quo? Like, how did we get to a point where um, companies are prioritizing their own revenue over the the buyer experience? Logically, most people would agree with you, right? Like, yes, give them a good experience, but then the the reality doesn't follow that logic. So if we kind of, I want to unpack, like, how did we get here? Why is this, why is this the case? So I think a lot of what's happened in the last 18 months plays well into this conversation. I think what happened initially is that we went from colonialism to rapid development into major industry very quickly. So rapid growth and massive scale became the focus right away when we knew it was a possibility. And it's been a focus for so long and we've built this amazing empire. Businesses today rise and fall left and right. You could start a business and make your first million in no time if it's the right time and the right product or the right service with the right marketing and the right skill set. We can do this all day today. But what we've learned is that it's not sustainable. We got here and this became the status quo because everyone started focusing on that mass scale. I want the BBD and I want it as fast as possible. Shorter sales cycles, you know, quicker value, make it smaller, make sure you're being aggressive, move the dial, right? Everybody started focusing on the end game. What they left behind was experience that the the sellers were having. This is why buyer's remorse is rampant in so much spaces today. No matter the vertical, you can find people that literally will buy something and then be like, I don't know what happened. I bought it. And then the guy just vanished. I, they just like disappeared. I don't, he was a great salesperson. What a great buying experience. I've never used the product. It just sits here. I don't know what to do with it. Right. You see this all the time. And the reason you see it is because they're not focused on what happens after the fact they're focused on that quarter. They're focused on that report. They're focused on that bottom line. Well, that's amazing. I think that that is admirable. But if that bottom line churns annually every single year, you're going to run out of options pretty fast. And that's what's happening because competition has become the thing. Again, rapid growth, rapid scale. Oh, if this person has 100% of the market and they're making billions, all I need is 10% to make millions. (laughs) I just need 10% of the market. I only have to convince 10% of this behemoth's customer base, which I can easily target with the technology that's available today. And then I can go ahead and I can get them to jump on my platform and I'll win their revenue and we'll be millionaires by the end of the two-year run. And then we'll sell the company. We'll just sell it. We'll just move on. We'll sell it for, you know, 3X, whatever our annual reoccurring revenue is. And then we'll be out. We'll be gone. It won't be our problem anymore. Right? And this is the way people think. Yeah. You know, and I think I think that the experience that customers have is more important than the product and the features and the functions for that reason. Because no matter what you're buying, it's out of date in months or less. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think two factors that I see play out over and over again. Um, and I think actually what you described of just sort of like the the societal shifts that have happened in, in history, I think is a great yeah. call out on why this is the case. And then you layer on top of that, I think, um, how the internet and technology and the subscription economy, I think dramatically changed everything in the, the early 2000s and um, sort of all of the VC money out there and that dynamic between VCs and founders. And I think you have 
short term prioritized over long term. And then this um, what I've almost been calling like a manufactured sense of urgency, like Mm -hmm. I'll. I like to act with urgency, right? There are times when you need to act quickly and act fast. Um, but it seems like everyone feels like everything has to happen immediately or yesterday. And that's just not true. If everything is urgent, nothing is urgent. Right. And so it's this people, you know, can't actually look at things with that long-term view. They're so focused, like you said, on the next day, the next quarter that they make poor decisions um, because you can make bad decisions that get you a short-term outcome, but they are going to catch up with you and bite you later. And then this, like, I don't know if it's the hustle culture or whatever it is, but, um, how everyone thinks like, whether it's like fear of missing out or like the competitor is going to get there before we do, if we don't move fast enough. And I just, I think it's like, it's all kind of BS. Um, and I think those two feelings or behaviors are so commonplace today and people don't question them. They just, they, they, they believe them to be true and they don't consider an alternate way to operate. Right. Yeah. No, I, not only do they not consider an alternate way to operate, but most of the time it's extremely short-sighted. It's for that one particular goal that they want to get to quickly. It's not for the long-term betterment of anyone that's involved in it. So you mentioned urgency and we talk about urgency all the time. Again, the reason we're here is because urgency became the norm in business. We started to see this rapid growth and this rapid scale and people were getting rich left and right. And it was like a grab bag for urgency. Everybody was like, things have to happen fast. We got to grab this market share really quick. And then we're going to get out really fast, make our millions and move on to the next thing, which is what I really want to do with my life anyway. Right. There's all this, like, there's all this, like, hoopla about how I can get this million really fast so that I can actually live my life. I can tell you now, most of the people are living a life that they've decided to have because of the fact that urgency is their norm. They think they have to move people through quickly to get, it's like a revolving door that just keeps moving and keeps moving. And you just keep walking through it over and over, over and over. This is not sustainable in any way, shape, or form, not only for the individual, but for the organizations, because Mm -hmm. change can't happen when you're doing the same thing over and over, but expecting this different result. That's not, that's not business savvy. That's not, that's not change and progress. We see this in the Toys R Us's and the, you know, the Sears of the world right now that are just vanishing left and right, uh, just because change was, was difficult for them. Uh, Urgency, though, cannot be created. We try to create urgency. We try to reach out to people and say, you should feel really urgent about this. They don't. (laughs) Nor is your urgency, you know, prodding going to help them feel more urgent about it. What you can do is have real authentic conversation with somebody about what you do to help them what you can do to change their current results. And if you are able to have that healthy, authentic conversation, you can potentially uncover urgency. And that's John Barrows talks about this all the time. Mm -hmm. When we try to create urgency, what we're really saying is, I want you to move through my sales cycle quickly. (laughs) And that's my customer first. (laughs) But, But nobody buys 
things when we want them to. They buy things when they're ready to buy them and they go through their own process. So we talk about slowing this process down and really saying to them, let me tell you typically what happens next. And then you tell people how people buy from you. And then you say on your end, how do you typically buy stuff like this? And then they have to tell you how they buy stuff. And now everyone understands what is it to happen next? And we can see in front of us before it even begins. That's appropriate management of the conversation, right? So notice that we've not talked at all about features or functions. We've talked about conversation. We've talked about history. We've talked about knowledge and getting to know people, having real authentic back and forth. This is the type of experience that people want to have with people they're about to hand money to. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I felt really uncomfortable for a long time through COVID-19 handing people three, four, $500 worth of my money. And I couldn't see them smile at me when I gave them my money, I it like made me uncomfortable. Humans crave that connection and the validation. Yeah. Yeah. Part of our makeup. Yeah. And I think like to expand on this, and this is what I was thinking as you were speaking, um, you were inspiring these thoughts. It's like, um, something I've learned in my career, um, you know, I've had the benefit of being part of a lot of different companies and, you know, IPO acquisition, um, when I got my first promotion to the C-suite and what's been so like, I, I thought I was doing all of the things in my career to get to those achievements or those outcomes. And then you finally get to them and you're like, okay, <laughs> like it's cool for a minute and it's like fun, but then it's over. And then you're just back to life. And I think it really back to the first of the month when everything sets back to zero. <laughs> yeah. And it really made me think like, I have to actually enjoy the process. I need mm-hmm. to enjoy the journey if like, and, and if I enjoy the journey and detach myself from the outcome, um, that's going to be a more enjoyable experience than just right. over optimizing for a particular outcome. And so I think it's just another way to just say, I think what you're saying is you have to, you have to have that long-term mindset. You have to cultivate an experience that you want to be a part of and that other people want to be a part of and you have to yeah. enjoy it. And then if you do things right and honestly put things on the table, like, like the chips will fall in the right place. Right. Absolutely. One of the things that we say is that people forget, especially after their first year. I think the first year, everybody kind of feels first year, meaning it's your first sales job. You're, you know, 20 something years old, even if you're like in your thirties, right. And you starting this first sales job, or maybe you moved to another sales role from another one for the first year. You're like, this is the best. Doesn't matter what the job is. You're like, this is the best, but six months, a year in, you could talk to that same person and they're ready to quit if they're not a promotion by the end of the year, right? Like this is the nature of complacency that we've built up in our society. And it's how we operate. 
lives as well. I think this is a faux pas. I think it's something that we've built up in our minds. And let me tell you, I'm not superhuman, right? Like I suffer from the same things that everybody else suffers from, you know, self-doubt, confidence, you know, am I spending my time right? Am I hitting my number? You know, how far away am I? Who am I going to get help from? Who do I look up to as a mentor? Like, you know, I talk about the fence all the time. I ride this fence on one side of the fence are people that are, you know, where they want to be where I am. And I'm always reaching down, helping them get up on my fence. And then on the other side of my fence is people that are where I want to be. And I'm always reaching up so they can help me get up on their fence. Right. And if I just keep riding that fence, I'm going to be great. My whole life. I'm still on that fence. Get on the fence with me, people. It's nice to be on the fence. It's a slower lifestyle. You enjoy it more. I am completely detached from outcomes. I focus on one thing and one thing only. And that is how much value can I deliver to this person on this call? How can I show them what I can do to help them so they'll be ready to move to that next stage. And then how do I, and this is the part that people really struggle with, and I'm learning from Meg Holsinger, our customer success director. I swear to you, this woman is the most direct person I've ever met. But (laughs) taking a note out of her page book, man, when you are more direct, people really appreciate that. You think you're coming across aggressive. And yeah, maybe it feels that way to you. But really, when you're more direct and you say things like, look, my goal is to get JB sales on demand in front of your people. Can we make that happen? It takes a moment for it to like get you to get used to it. But once you figure out how to do that and not have the worry about the no, because I, dude, if you say no, it's fine. I hear no all the time. It's cool. Yeah. Right? I'll move on to the next person. Maybe they'll say yes. Right. Because I'm going to provide the value for them and they're into it. Like, it's cool. But once you're there, you can be more direct and it's a little less stressful for everybody. And people really do appreciate it. Don't waste their time. They won't waste yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. (laughs) And actually one of my like points in my own customer success philosophy is have the tough conversations early and often. Um, And so in any context, right, whether you're having a discovery call, you're trying to close a sale, you're trying to retain a customer, deal with an escalation or an issue. um, I have, I also take that approach. Like I'm doing discovery sales calls for my company right now. And arguably I'm probably like not the best salesperson, but I get on the phone and I'm basically like, so nice to meet you. We have some fun, small talk, but then I'm like, so this is a discovery call. Like I'm going to ask you some questions <laughs> so that I can understand if you're a good customer for us. And then like, and then I'm going to tell you what we do. And then you're going to let me know if that's what you need. <laughs> and then at the end of the call, we'll kind of decide like, should we talk again? Like, or say goodbye. Maybe. Right. <laughs> Or, hey, high five, right? Thanks a lot. And so I'm like, you know, how does that sound for a game plan? And people are always like, yeah, that sounds really good. (laughs) That's kind of what I was Sounds good to me. Yeah, I'm amazed at how many people don't use the upfront contract the right way. I feel like there's a moment of every call, no matter what, where you can say, so here's how this is going to go. And the first person to get to that sentence is typically the person. That's the one that's driving the conversation. Sometimes that's not you. It's the problem prospect. But a lot of times you have the opportunity as the seller to say, let me tell you how these calls typically go and you can drive the bus. Some people prefer to not drive the bus. I always say that some people are meant to be driven and some people are meant to be drivers. (laughs) I'm a driver. (laughs) I like being driven. I'm fine drinking my juice, not having to worry about it. I'll look out the window. Fine. You can drive me. For that, yeah, I'm definitely a control freak. <laughs> like I always like to be driving. I'm like, oh, I'll just take control. Thank you very much. Yeah, 
I'm actually the opposite. I'd rather not have control. I'd rather relinquish my control and give it to you. You control it. I'll just add value along the way. I'm totally well, we need, Yeah, we need both roles in this life. We need, you know, the one, can, one can't exist. <laughs> to give or take world. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I feel like we've actually touched on several um, tactics of how to actually think about not falling into the trap of the status quo, actually optimizing your buyer's experience, um, you know, not falling into that, that trap. And so um, I am sure that you have a lot of other really great strategies and tactics and tools that you guys use, um, to model, you know, sort of this, this behavior. And so I'd love to get a little tactical for, for the listeners and would love to have you share some of your wisdom of um, whether you're a seller. I feel like this can apply to a lot of different roles, right? Whether you're a seller, customer success person. So not, you know, it doesn't have to just be a salesperson, but what are some of your, what are some of your best, best tactics? Yeah. So I like small talk. Some people don't like small talk. So here's a good tactic. Know who you're about to talk to. I talk about this all the time on Q and A's. Look at their profile picture. Does it look like this? (laughs) They don't like small talk. That person, that person is probably not cool with how's the weather, right? Like they, they're, they're not going to be super amped to be like, oh my gosh, I saw you paragliding over the weekend. It was amazing. They're, no, they don't care. Right. But if they're like me and they're like this, <laughs> like that guy loves some good. I want to hear about your trip to Grand Canyon. I have to know that story. That story matters to me personally. So, <laughs> you know, like, know look at those people, like know who you're talking to. What kind of person is this? Read their about page. If they use language that is like, you know, data, KPIs, percentages, numbers, metrics. This is how they like to talk. This is the the language that they use, that they speak with people Mm -hmm. with. Use that language. That's important. But if they're like amazing, fantastic, wonderful, inspirational, they don't give a shit about the data. They care about how you make them feel. So use the language that they use, their love language, as I call it. And then, dude, look at their LinkedIn job description. Was it copied and pasted from the website? If it was, it's probably not very useful. But if they have it like bulleted out to like what they're responsible for, talk about that shit, man. Like that's the stuff they care about. <laughs> yeah. For that. Those are great tips. And then so you open then when you're on the call, I, yeah. this is the best one. When you're on the call, if you're going to share your screen, share it sparingly. Nobody likes to get to demos And they're like full on, okay, can everybody see my screen? I'm going to go through these left side features. And if I hit something that screams out to you, feel free to stop me. Every time demos start this way, everyone in the audience cringes and goes, oh my God, can I turn my camera off and mute and just keep working? Like, I don't even want to, this is why you hear people, they're like, oh, does that make sense? And nobody says anything. (laughs) Like, no, it doesn't make sense. I'm not even watching you. This is the worst experience I've ever had. (laughs) It's so true. I know one tactic that I like to use is especially like you're getting to the end of your discovery call and you're like, okay, like, I think you'd be a good customer. And they're like, I think that maybe we want to work with you. Not quite sure yet. Um, And then I say like, okay, I think it's worth continuing the conversation. Do you agree? And they say, yeah, I think we should talk more. And then I say, 
what are the concerns that you have? Or, you know, based on the conversation that we have today, like, what are your open questions? What are your open yeah. concerns? What did we not address yet that you were hoping to address? Um, and that's my agenda for the second call, right? And so when, they, and it's always different, oh, pricing or oh, this, or oh, what's in your scope of work or oh, uh, executive buy, whatever. It could be a million different things, but I literally like, okay, if we're gonna talk again, you know, what's on your mind that we need to talk right. about? I'm not going to dictate, I'm not going to assume to know what your questions or concerns are. And that's been really helpful. Then we're on the second call and I'll prepare some stuff, but it's like, okay, last time we talked, these were the three things. Are these mm -hmm. still the three things? Have other yep. things? What's changed? <laughs> what's yeah. changed since the last time we talked, right? That's the Morgan J. Ingram in my brain. Like what's changed since what's the changed? last time we talked? Great exactly. way to kick off the convo. I will say this though. I think that I think that there is not enough talked about the engaged buyer. Sellers have to recognize what an engaged buyer looks like versus a buyer that's on the fence or not as engaged as somebody that understands and is moving through your funnel. This is why in John's Driving to Close, we talk about scoring these conversations and being able to develop a scorecard coming away so that you know, like, what kind of buyer is this? Is this somebody I'm going to have to chase down? If it is, do I really want that in my pipeline or on my forecast? Probably not. Right. I remember when I first got here, I was, man, everybody that I talked to, I was like, Oh, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. Right. And after a while you close lost enough of those that you start getting really picky. Like you're like, okay, when should I actually create this opportunity? I'll tell you what, after we discuss pricing, so maybe like call two, three, four, then I'll create the opportunity. That way it doesn't show up on my, on my forecast. And it's like, you know, three months out, I'm still having calls with these people trying to figure out, is this a value for them? Are they even interested? You know, if I'm direct enough, I should be able to get there quickly through conversation. But then at the same time, I'm going to wait until they show a good enough amount of buying signals before I just create that opportunity. Simply because you have a phone call with somebody that goes well, doesn't mean you can come into your next one-on-one -on -one meeting and be like, Hey boss, this is going to close six figures. Solid. It's going to make my month. Like, totally. don't do this. <laughs> I have to ask you a follow-up question on something you brought up, which is pricing. So I would argue that um, part of a great buying experience is pricing transparency, right? Having pricing Absolutely. on your website. Yep. Um, I actually share pricing on all first calls. If they have, and many of them have seen it on our website. And if they don't, I'm just like, Hey, this is the price. Like, yeah. is that too much or too, like too little? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, and so I actually like to, to lead with that. I don't like to, to wait until the second or third or fourth call maybe for pricing. And I know, you know, a lot of companies don't put it on their website. A lot of companies don't want to share pricing. They want to gate that. Yep. Yeah. And so I'm curious, what's your, what's your take on, on this? How do you, how do you so think? So I, I actually believe, and our partners at Gong will, will show their data will show that top performers talk about pricing later in the funnel. However, I am a big fan of telling people what the rate card is. There's a difference in talking about what the price is and talking about what this particular thing that you need is going to cost you as far as an investment, because those two things might not be the same. Got it. Right. If you're coming to me saying, James, how much do you guys charge for filling the funnel? I'm going to say, do you mean 
if you sign up for on demand or do you mean live in person with John Morgan, Meg, myself, like, what are you talking about? Right. That's how you address that conversation when it comes too soon. I always talk about this because so my answer to give you the short answer is I believe that you can talk about pricing early, but you can talk about cost later. Those two things are sometimes very different. So that's how I handle that. What I'm talking about when it comes to pricing questions too early is that salespeople sometimes feel like we get hit with the pricing question too soon and you're just shopping for price. So John has a great response for this. Hey, are you just shopping for price? Because if you are, we're probably not a fit for you. Mm -hmm. We're not the cheapest solution and we don't want to be right. Mm -hmm. That's how it goes. That's a great response to that. The other, the flip side of that is you've been to many conferences in the past, I'm sure. Right. Conferences, you get the badge, right. Everybody's wearing their little badge, you know, and they they have their little barcode and you're supposed to grab your phone and, you know, and you tap it, you tap it. Right. And then they go into the, into your, I'm going to upload them to my CRM, right? Yeah. Well, there are two types of people wearing badges. There are people that are like, oh my gosh, you have gift cards. Scan my badge. How can I get a unicorn? I want to get one, please. Can I have two? I have two kids. Let me have some. Is that a t-shirt? I need three, right? <laughs> scan me out. Scan me twice. It's fine. I love spam, right? There's that person that has the badge, right? <laughs> but then there's, there's the other person. Don't scan me. <laughs> you don't know me. You don't know. I mean, I don't need your you stupid pen. You don't even know what I'm focused on. You don't know anything. Have you even qualified me? Don't you dare scan my badge. How dare you? <laughs> now, listen, the first person, the person that's like, oh my God, scan me, right? That person. That person will talk to you forever. You don't even have to like, you're like, so you like reach out to them with an email that's like, oh my God, so good to meet you at the event. Let's connect. And they're like, yep, totally. Bam, meeting schedule, right? Because that person is that person. The other person though, you reach out to them and you're like, great meeting you at the show. Thanks for coming by the booth. Would love to reconnect and continue the conversation. And they respond with, give me pricing. Or they go to some drift bot on your website and they're like pricing question mark. <laughs> and the person on the other end of the chat is like, I don't, I don't, what, I don't <laughs> what do I, what do I say? Right. <laughs> uh, this is where you get to flip the script. This is where you get to say, I can't just give you pricing. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your concerns are. I don't know what your, I don't even know what company you're, you wouldn't even let me scan your badge, man. I don't know anything about you, bruh. Like, I can't just give you pricing, like on what, like, what does that even mean? So I think when people talk about pricing, they have to understand the difference between what pricing questions mean and what the cost actually is. Because when you get down to the nitty gritty, people want to know what they're being charged for, what they're paying for, what they're going to get for it, and what kind of result they should expect to see from it. And that is a cost breakdown, not a pricing question. What I have to tell you is not in direct response to what you just said, but you are very funny and maybe you do stand up comedy on the side. But I, I, I imagine that humor is another tool that and tactic that you incorporate into your process as well. Right. Because everyone. Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, I do. I, I will say a quote that I say from Brother Ali, who's one of my favorite rappers out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. What language do you laugh in? Right. It's universal. Uh, When I make somebody laugh, 
it makes my day. It makes me feel good about what I do for a living. I said all through college, I said that I wanted to get a job where I get to talk to people, make them smile. Mm -hmm. And now I have that job. This is my dream job. <laughs> and that speaks to buyer experience too, right? Like it does. People, like, and that's something like I actually try to make people smile and laugh in my discovery calls because you create a feeling of, of warmth and yep. connection. Right. Um, and, and, and in a genuine I, way, I think that Absolutely. I think it forces people to see human being behind the value because sometimes I think we demonize sellers. We think that they're, they're just people that want my money. They don't really care about me. They just want me to sign on the dotted line. You want to find the right seller. Every seller has an ideal buyer. <laughs> I'll prove it to you. <laughs> have you ever met somebody before that you don't know why you have no idea why, but when you shook their hand, you were like, Oh my God, I love that person. <laughs> I fall in love. With I don't know why they're the so amazing. Yeah, I, <laughs> I want to talk to them all the time. I can't get enough of that individual. <laughs> and then you've met other people where you're like, if I ever see that prick again, it's going to be way too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely right? want those people Somebody... to be friends with a stranger and you can tell right away if you want, if you want to be their friend or not. <laughs> I'm that person. I will, I will talk to anybody. It doesn't matter. My wife is always like, before we go into places, she's always like, could you just like not talk to anybody? If you could just not say <laughs> just tonight, then it's going to be like, then it's going to be like a whole thing. You know, that's how she, that's how she does. <laughs> one of but, my best, one of my best stories was me and my boyfriend at the time went to a restaurant. We started talking to the people sitting next to us. It was like an outdoor cafe. It was lunchtime. They were like, pull up your table and join us for lunch. We kept drinking and six hours later, we're like, let's yep. order dinner. <laughs> yep. So this happened to me. This happens to me all over the world. I was in Bunratty, Ireland at a castle having dinner. It was like a medieval dinner. And there were these like, no kidding, like supermodel people sitting next to us. <laughs> and I was like, straight up, like, where's the Calvin Klein shoot, man? Like, uh, like just asking them questions. Like, and I was like, dude, your underwear is definitely Calvin Klein. Don't lie to me, man. And he was like, oh, totally. And then he like pulled it. I was like, oh my God, you have to be kidding. We ended up going to this bar, this pub called Dirty Nellie's right there outside the <laughs> castle. We got, man, we had the best time with these people. But think about that from the perspective of like how we impact others. I, my whole goal when I connect with somebody new is that I need them to remember me. Not only do I need them to remember me, I need them to favor me. I want them to be like, when I connect with him, I feel something, right? His energy, his body language, his communication style, his emphasis, his tone, all that stuff resonates with them. And because that's the feedback I get, I know in my heart of hearts, the experience that buyers have makes an enormous impact on their decision to buy from you. That's a hundred percent true. I don't care how you cut that pie. That um, is a great segue. I feel like we could talk for like three hours, um, <laughs> but uh, I have my two final questions to wrap it up. Um, and I think you just kind of summed up the, the heart of this topic with, with what you just said, but future cast 10 years from now, 2031, I guess if my math is correct. What do you hope to be true? Yeah on the topic we're discussing? Uh, so off the topic, I hope we have hoverboards by then, but also I feel like I want, 
I want to see more salespeople out there creating content. And I want to see more people talking about the buyer's experience they had with the seller. You know, we, we talk so much about sellers. We're always trying to fix things, make it better. Who's helping the buyers buy, you know, and who's showing the sellers what buyers care about. Mm -hmm. I hope in 10 years, we're able to have that conversation on public forums, just like this one. I love that. Um, I mean, I think we'll definitely have hoverboards. I feel like in 10 years, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos will have like their mansions on the moon or maybe yeah, dude, like, come on, man. Back <laughs> to the going future to was like now. forever ago. Make it happen. Oh. <laughs> They're just like, forget earth. Like see y'all, see y'all later. Um, yeah. all right. Last question before we wrap up and I'll, I'll ask you to also share where people can find more about you. But if we talked about a lot on this, on this conversation, we covered a lot of different tactics and tips and, and sort of what is true now and what we hope to be true later. But if people could take away just one thing from this conversation, what do you hope that it is? Uh, I hope it's that you and your authenticity is your best ally for being successful. And I use that term success very loosely. Define it how you'd like, because it looks different for everybody. But your authentic, authentic, authentic self, the way that you represent yourself digitally, that is, a, that is a digital representation of your professional self. And if you manage that the right way, you will find success, whatever that might look like to you. So I hope, I hope people take that away from this and see that authenticity will take you quite far in your professional development if you only have the courage to show it and not be afraid of the judgment that might come along with it. I love that. And I think alongside that, having empathy for others, authenticity as well. Um, yeah. Sorry. You have to give so, a shit. That's the other, I guess yeah, that's the other. Goes, <laughs> that was beautiful. That was well said. James, this was awesome. Where can people find you? Where can they learn more about what you all do? Drop oh, yeah. emails. Yeah, absolutely. So you can reach out anytime on Instagram. I am at say what sales, or you can feel free to follow JB sales training, all one word. We are putting out fire tips on Instagram every day. Also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to find hashtag say what sales just about everywhere. Check us out at ondemand.jbarrows.com to become a member today. And we can connect one-on-one -on -one and have some fun together. Well, James, it's always a pleasure and I look forward to many more conversations where we can make each other laugh. Bet on it. <laughs>